Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, yeah, it's fun to see the old, old familiar faces here again. Can't believe how tall Tess has got. I, I really can't go over that. I, I can't believe you've been gone that long. <laughs> um, so just want to give a shout out to our, our friend uh, Kerry, uh, our very own Kerry Landero, who's been stage managing a, a play um, in Soho, and, and it's called Don't Look Back, and we've been promoting it um, in our notices and announcements at the end of church. And so I finally got to go and uh, see this show that she's been managing. And you know how it is when, when you, you support your friends in New York who are in the arts and, and painters and, and uh, uh, music and, and in theater, and you're like, I hope, I hope I like what I'm about. I hope I like this, right? <laughs> Otherwise, what are you going to do? Well, that was very interesting, you know. <laughs> um, and it was, it was very interesting, but in a good way. It was, it was actually really, really good. I, I, so I highly recommend it. Um, I, I thought it was a really good exploration of a, of a very short story uh, in, in Genesis, and it was just so well done. So um, I would highly recommend going and seeing that. It's on for a few more few more nights, isn't that right, Raf? How many? Till thirtieth. Okay. So, um, and the, the lead guy reminded me of Tevia from Fiddle on the Roof. He's got another fat cap and stuff, and he just just played it well. Um, Okay, so this morning we, we are in the third part of our series called "The Things That Shape Us," and essentially, for what we're what we're doing in this series is we are looking at all of the, the basic Christian disciplines, praying, reading the Bible, witnessing to the world about our faith, baptizing people, sharing communion. And we're asking the question, why? Why is it that you can walk into any church around the world, and any group of Christians, and they will be in some way, shape, or form practicing these things? Why do we do this? What do we think is happening when we do these things? What are these things for? And that sort of underlying premise of this series is, is that there is, there is this way that God uses these things to shape us into these sort of what we've been saying are high-definition people, people who can present the goodness of God in the highest resolution possible to the world around us. And so last week we, we um, looked at communion. This week uh, we're going to uh, take a deep dive into baptism. Um, so I, I thought I'd just start out by, by talking about my own baptism and what led me uh, along that path. And some of you may have heard part of this story before, um, but might as well start personal, right? And then we'll, we'll go from, from there. So I reached a point in life where I realized I had everything I wanted, not just materially, but I also had good friends and family. Uh, and this was a little worrying for me. It was disturbing because with my whole life ahead of me, everything going my way, I was depressed. And I'm not talking about feeling down about a few things or having a few bad days, but I was depressed to the extent that I just wanted to end it all. I would wake up every morning wishing that I hadn't bothered waking up, and nothing I could do would shake this depression. So I went to the doctor. The doctor put me on a steady round of antidepressants, and look, if you've got a clinical depression, that's probably the best thing I could have done. Um, I have several friends who've been tremendously helped that way, but what I had was not driven clinically. It was an existential crisis. It was a, a sense of emptiness. It was a sense of meaninglessness, right? Uh, and um, it, it's, look, when I say I had everything I wanted, I don't mean I had everything I wanted, but, but I could extrapolate out, and I had this sense that, that what, no matter what happened, whatever it was I got that I didn't have, once I got it, it was always going to come up empty, right? It was just going to come up meaningless, and everything was going nowhere in the end. That, that's... that's and so, do you, you remember a few weeks ago, we, we talked about that philosopher, Arthur Schopenhauer, who describes life so cheerfully? 
he's the definition of a pessimist, he says life oscillates between having, wanting something you don't have and being bored with what you do have. And so we just go back and forth between unfulfilled desire and boredom, boredom back to unfulfilled desire and back to boredom again, and, and, and so it goes on. And that's where I was. And, and, and so the, the, the wisdom of, uh, I think it is one of the Greek gods, Selenius, uh, would have appealed to me at the time if I'd heard these words. What he says is, you, you, um, you would have been better off never being born. But don't worry, you'll soon have the best, next best thing, you'll soon be dead. Um, cheerful stuff. Well, uh, a, a series of, of events led me to church. That's a whole other story. I'll, I'll say that for another time. But a series of lens, events led me to church. And I'm so thankful that every Sunday I was presented with this person of Jesus Christ. And I'm so grateful to the pastor, Mark Owen, who was a pastor of that church back then, who presented Jesus so faithfully and in such a compelling way that I knew that if I started following this Jesus person, I was going to find a fulfillment and a direction and a meaning in life that I had never experienced before. And so I got to the point where I knew I had to follow Jesus into the waters of baptism. I now needed to get baptized. I remember the, the night of my baptism, it was an evening service, and there were five of us being baptized together that evening. And uh, we, all of us had to, it was a tradition to stand up and share the reasons. Why am I being baptized? And so I told my story of my existential crisis. And, and it was interesting, though, because all five of us had very, very different stories and motivations and things that were driving us reasons. The, the meaning of baptism w w was sort of very, very different, right, for each one of us. And, um, and I think that is right. I, I think that uh, the, baptism had a, has a kaleidoscope of, of personal meanings tied up with, with our journeys. And, and so people get baptized for all sorts of reasons. Um, some come because they, they want to overcome a, a, a fear of death. For others, it's an appeal. There's an appeal to come out of a desire to be re released from uh, our guilt and this burden of guilt and sin and shame. Some come because truth seems beautiful and compelling. Um, some, like me, you know, I was coming for, uh, with a desire to fulfill an existential longing. Some come to resolve a particular problem. Others come with a desire to be loved, which we all have that, that desire to be loved. Um, C.S. Lewis talks about fleeting moments of joy, and he was pursuing that, that, those moments of joy and wondering where, what's behind that. And so there's, there's all sorts of, of reasons. And so you notice that, that there's you know, this mix of, of short and long-term uh, desires and, and longings. Uh, that there's the, some, some are driven by logic. Others are, are perhaps driven by a more an instinct and, a, and a sen an instinctive sense about things, a feeling. Um, let's just stop for a moment. Just think about baptism for yourself. Perhaps you're considering being baptized or perhaps it's something that you've, you've already done. How, how would you characterize your own journey towards that. Well, Jesus was also baptized, but which of these was driving Jesus? Um, he didn't need to overcome his fear of death. He's the Lord of life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live, even though he dies. Whoever dies and believes in me will, whoever lives and believes in me will never die, right? The Lord of life, no. Uh, maybe it was an existential crisis. Well, no, I've come that you may have life, life in all its fullness. That's not someone having an existential crisis, right? Um, perhaps uh, he had a, uh, a burden of sin. No, no, he was tempted in every way, yet he was without sin. Oh, that's right, sinless. Um, 
maybe he needed to be that wanted to feel loved. Uh, well, I don't think anyone who feels unloved could love the way Jesus loves and then turn around and tell people, love one another as I have loved you. So, so Jesus was baptized, but it wasn't for any of the reasons that, that many of us, the, the things that motivated us and, and drove us to that. So why was he baptized? And, and that's what I want to meditate on this morning. And, and my hope is that by meditating on Jesus' own baptism, we will grow in our, a deeper understanding of the baptisms that we're going to perform in this church and have performed, and, and a deeper understanding of our own personal baptisms, a little bit like the people who were baptized around the time of Jesus. But there were a lot of people in those crowds who were baptized before Jesus, but then Jesus steps into the waters of baptism and suddenly their understanding of what they've done previously has, has to shift and they have a deeper, newer understanding, a new dimension added to their understanding of their own baptism. So that's what I'm, I'm hoping to do this morning, uh, that, our, that our personal reasons for being baptized will be taken up and understood in the context of God's larger purposes. Of course, Jesus didn't get up and give his testimony. Right? Uh, and the crowds that were coming to be baptized, none of them got up and gave their testimony. No one caught it on video. Uh, it hasn't been recorded for us. If they did it, it doesn't say they, they did that. Right? Um, that's our tradition, not just Trinity Heights, but, but churches uh, in general now, they, they do that. I think it's a great tradition. I really like the fact that when we cram everyone into Tim and Ruth's apartment and we baptize them in the bathtub, there's reasons why we do it that way. But, but we, before they, they go into the bathtub, and we get, that we always have someone share their story and tell the story that this is the journey that I've been on. This is, this is what led me to, to follow Jesus in, into baptism. I think that's a great tradition. But that wasn't their tradition. That's our tradition. It's not what they did. But we do have this really interesting interaction between Jesus and John the Baptist. And Jesus comes to John the Baptist and he, and he says, look, uh, um, I want you to baptize me. And, and John, as Jesse just read for us, is sort of thrown by this because if you, if you read elsewhere, he, he actually says, there's one coming after me who is far greater than me, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And so here he comes and says, I want you to baptize me. He said, no, no, I can't baptize you. And, and Jesus says, no, uh, you must baptize me in order that all righteousness might be fulfilled. There it is, Jesus' explanation, or his testimony, if you like, the explanation as to why he was baptized, that all righteousness might be fulfilled. But what does that mean, this mysterious phrase? And I think if we're going to understand that, that phrase, we, we have to understand and, and be sensitive to all of the different um, symbols and stories that Jesus is, is evoking and John is evoking. What we could do is we could, we could one, one way we could do this is zoom out, and we could just look at the context in which Jesus is being baptized. And uh, by the context, I mean the literal geographical context, the, the, the landscape and the people who were involved. Um, and and what, what do we have? We, we have this desert, right? There's a desert, and, and there are all these crowds out in the desert, and, Jesus, and John is baptizing people in the Jordan River, and, and John, he cuts a prophetic figure. So the ingredients for this event uh, is that we have this desert, we have the River Jordan, we have John and the crowds. Desert and Jordan and prophet and crowds. This is always a volatile mix. Why? Why? Because, well, the Israel, it's their story. They had wandered around the desert for 40 years following the, uh, not just any prophet, the archetypal prophet, Moses. And then when it came time to crossing into the promised land, they cross over. The crowds pass through the Jordan River. Desert and Jordan, prophet and crowds. Always a volatile mix because it ties everything back. This is, this is a sort of story that makes 
kings and emperors nervous because it ties the story back to the Exodus. And, and so suddenly, Jesus' baptism, and therefore our baptism, has something to do with the Exodus story. But that's not the one I want to focus on this morning. Um, I just mentioned that uh, because I, I want us to be aware of the fact that, that even if we set all our many, very many personal reasons aside for baptism, um, the baptism remains, just from a biblical perspective, a multifaceted affair. And I'm not about to exhaust the meaning of baptism for us this, this morning. But, but, but what I want us to do, so I just mentioned this because I want us to be aware of the, the multi-dimensions of this, but, but that's from zooming out. What if we were to zoom in? So that's what I want to do now. I want to zoom in on the action of the baptism itself. And so what do we have? What, what's going on here? We've got, we've got Jesus who goes down into the water, right? A symbol of chaos and evil in, in the ancient Mideast going down into that chaos and evil, going down into the water. Then he comes back up out of the water, and the Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove, and there is a voice, this is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So we have the water, we have the Spirit, and we have the voice. Reflecting on this story, Rowan Williams points out that, that early Christians soon began to make connections with another story involving water, and spirit and voice. At the very beginning of creation, the book of Genesis tells us there was watery chaos. And over that watery chaos, there was, depending on how you read the Hebrew, the Holy Spirit hovering, or a great wind blowing, or perhaps one is a sort of metaphor for the other. First there is chaos, and then there is the wind of God's spirit, and a voice speaks, let there be. And from the watery chaos comes the world, which God says is good. The water and the spirit and the voice. And you start to see why early Christians began to associate the event of baptism with exactly that image which the Apostle Paul uses, that of new creation. It's associated with that ancient creation story, and, and, and baptism gets tied up with the new creation. Okay, so let's, let's pull this together. Jesus says he wants to be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness is actually, if, whenever you read this in the New Testament it's, it's, and, and the Old Testament, it's often a way of talking about, it's, it's almost a synonym for God's covenant faithfulness. God's faithfulness to his covenant. That's why it says we're not saved by our own righteousness, our own faithfulness to the covenant, but we are saved by God's faithfulness to the covenant, God's faithfulness to us. So when, when you see this term righteousness, think of God's covenant faithfulness. And, and what has God covenanted to do? Well, well, God has promised he's not going to abandon his creation, he's not going to give up on humanity, and he will not um, do away with, with this world. Uh, in fact, he wants to heal this world. He wants to make humanity whole again, right? This broken, fractured humanity. He wants to make it whole again, um, and he wants to set the world to rights. What is righteousness? Righteousness is about God's covenant faithfulness. What is God's covenant faithfulness? What does that actually look like? It looks like new creation. And so, by being baptized, Jesus is sort of placing himself, not, not as the first person to be baptized by John, not the last, but he placed himself right in the middle of those crowds being baptized. And by doing that, he symbolically sort of 
planting himself right into the middle of humanity, right into the middle of Israel's story, the human story. He's planting himself right into the, the middle of all of our chaos and, and evil and the broken fracture of humanity. And it's as if from there, the new creation is going to start to ripple out, right? And, and God is going to start to, to inaugurate his new creation and reclaim his, his creation. And so all of this, this, this righteousness, of fulfill all righteousness, Jesus says. In other words, for God's covenant faithfulness to, to start to happen. It's going to happen here. And, and what does that look like? It looks like new creation. And so baptism, Jesus' baptism contains all of this. And ultimately, when we're baptized, what that means is we are participating in this new creation project. And so whatever reasons we may have had for being baptized, I think it's helpful to understand our initial personal motivations uh, were really just a glimmer of the first glimmer in our own lives of the new creation. Whatever it was that drove you there, just think, of, think back to your own story, what motivated you, what drove you, that, that was the first glimmer of the new creation working its way into your life. Or, or think of it as the first path that you took into the new creation. And, and of course, we don't abandon that first glimmer of new creation that we experienced, but we broaden out our understanding of the new creation, and we learn to pursue all these other paths into the new creation as well. So that these grand themes of Fulfilling all righteousness, right, and, and uh, embodying covenant faithfulness and new creation. They're, they're not ethereal, abstract concepts floating around in the air up there somewhere, but they're just, they're just so um, rooted in, in our lives in, in very concrete ways. So what does it look like? What does it look like? What a, what a week to ask that question, hey. I think it looks like the stuff that Eric was praying for earlier, right? Just so when you think things couldn't get any more polarized, any more divided, people couldn't be at each other's throats anymore and, and say any nastier things online, right, in, on social media, they're, they're, there's all sorts of really ugly stuff that we're, um, I'm seeing out there. Um, and Eric was just telling me about some, some of the things he's seen this morning. And it's just... It's just, it's just and, and so I think in a context like this, perhaps this week and in the weeks to come, new creation, baptized people would be in the middle of that chaos, be the bridge, be the people who bring together the anti-gun lobby and the NRA members, right? That we're the people who can actually bring those people together and despite that difference on that issue, teach each other to love each other and serve each other and care for each other and look out for each other's best interests. Perhaps in the context of, of the pro-life and pro-choice, we can be the people who, who say, look, regardless, I've got your back and I'm going to serve you and love you and care for you, regardless of where you stand on, on, those, on those issues. Perhaps that's what new creation, for God who wants to bring humanity together and heal us and make us whole again, perhaps it begins, it begins there. Um, bring more love, more forgiveness, we speak truth, we create beauty, we bring joy. Um, each time we sit with someone who's, who's lonely, or we help someone feel understood, who feels isolated in their own thoughts, I think in that moment we embody God's covenant faithfulness. Each time we help someone see God's purpose more clearly, or each time we offer hope in the face of, of trouble and death, we fulfill all righteousness. This is, this is to participate in the new creation project. Well, I'm going to 
close here with an illustration that I think gathers up these, this, all, all of this, which is all gathered up in baptism. Um, and uh, it's an illustration that I've, I've found very helpful from N.T. Wright. Um, and I think it, it captures what, what, it, what the baptized person is being brought, brought into. He says, the image I've often used in trying to explain these strange but important ideas and the way they work together is that of the stonemason working on a part of a great cathedral. So I'll just put this up. These are some photos I've, I've taken of Durham Cathedral, which is on the, the main quad at the university in Durham. And, and so I've stood a long time. Every year I go back and I just stand there at different times of day and, and, and stare at this from outside and inside. And, and the more you stare, the more incredible details that, that that you you see, and I, and I know I still haven't noticed noticed everything, but it's uh, it's a cathedral that they they started building in 10, 1093, um, so it's 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 been there a while. And so he says, I I, I use the, I'll use this as a visual for us. So he says, um, I think of it as stonemason working on different a part of the great cathedral. The architect already drew up the plans and passed on instructions to the team of masons as to which stones need carving and in what way. The foreman distributes these tasks among the team. One shapes stones for a particular tower or turret. Another carves the delicate pattern that breaks up the otherwise forbidding straight lines. Another works on gargoyles, coats of arms. Another is making statues of saints and martyrs, kings or queens. And they're vaguely aware that others are getting on with their task. And they know, of course, that many other departments are busy about quite different tasks as well. When they're finished with their stones and statues, they hand them over without necessarily knowing very much about where in the eventual building their work will find its home. They may not have seen the complete architect's drawing of the whole building with their bit identified in its proper place. They may not live either to see the completed building with their work at last where it belongs, but they trust the architect that the work they have done in following instructions will not be wasted. They are then not themselves building the cathedral, but they are building for the cathedral. And when the cathedral is complete, their work will be enhanced, ennobled. It will mean much more than it could have meant as they were chiseling it and shaping it down to the stonemason's yard. So it's this idea that, that all the things that we're doing here right now, the things that we've mentioned, are, are building for the new... We're not building the new creation. We are building for the new creation. That image, of course, is itself incomplete since actually the cathedral is eventually built by the combination of all the artisans and craftspeople working together, whereas God's eventual kingdom will be a fresh gift of transformation and renewal from the architect himself. But it's enough to indicate the way in which there's continuity between the present life and the work we do in it and the ultimate future life in which God has gathered all things together and transformed them, making all things new in Christ, so that nothing we do in the Lord as new creation, covenant faithfulness, righteousness-fulfilling people will be done in vain. Let us pray. Father, it's, it's really easy to get focused on... on um, the, the chaos in, in the world and the division. And we thank you for the reminder that you have started your new creation project and you will bring it to completion. Father, thank you we are, that we are invited to participate in that, that we can follow Jesus into those waters of baptism. 
and that by your spirit you work through your church to build for the new creation. Father, help us to keep this sort of perspective on everything we do this week and in the weeks to come, especially as we engage with the people around us. Help us to bring more love and truth and beauty into their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.